Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, friends. I'm so excited to tell you about this wonderful product that I've recently discovered. Companies offer to send me products for free to try it out, and I'm always a little resistant because I don't want to take things that I don't need or want. But when Canuda reached out to me, I was intrigued because they were offering me a pillow that had been researched and designed ergonomically by no other than a physical therapist. Woohoo! It has been tested and proven for over 10 years and already loved by more than 2 million customers worldwide. Well, you can add me to that 2 million. I love it. It is the first ever pillow to incorporate physical therapy techniques like cranial sacral, where it relieves neck pain and induces a proper sleep position. You can lie on your back or side. I usually end up on my side and I still wake up feeling great because this quality memory foam supports my skull and the cervical spine so you don't wake up with those cricks in your neck. I, like so many of you, have struggled to find that perfect pillow that really supports me in different positions, and this is it. You've got to try it. If you've tried a range of products in the past and nothing has seemed to work, try Canuda. And we have a discount. So go to the show notes to get a coupon and get that discount at CanudaUSA.com. I'm in love with this pillow, and I can't wait for you to try it. Good movement and welcome to Redefining Yoga, a lit yoga podcast, which is designed to investigate all aspects of the modern evolution of yoga from my background as a physical therapist and lover of movement. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through smarter and safer movement patterns so together we can be uplifted, benefiting all beings. Welcome, Jean. I am beyond thrilled to have you here. As you must know, I am one of your biggest fans and you really have had such a massive impact on my life, on my husband's life, on my family's life. I mean, we are vegan in a majority part because of you. So it's always great to see your face. And and um, I just want everybody to hear you and he- learn of your wonderful work and hear some inspiring stories. No, thanks, Laura. It's great to see you as always. And I'm hugely appreciative of everything you do to raise awareness, to promote compassion, to make people think about their daily choices and the impacts of those choices. Because, you know, we, most of us grow up eating meat without thinking about it. And, and in this way, most of us grew up contributing to enormous suffering. So it's important for us to just be more aware and then ultimately, hopefully make choices that we can feel better about that are better for us, better for animals, better for the earth. Yes. Amen. So when I first met you 20 years ago, I was so inspired by the way you talked in, and we have really modeled, uh, we've been modeled ourselves after Jean. I feel like you're like Jesus. Like I really model um, because you have, you have been able to walk this wonderful line of really holding yourself accountable and having these big dreams of the whole world being vegan and no more suffering. And yet you're also incredibly gracious and understanding and compassionate towards humans, which I do think sometimes is 
not as obvious in vegan with vegan activists. How do you feel like that has that? That's probably just your vibe. I think that's who you are. But can you tell me about maybe some people that have? I hate to use the word converted, but who have, you know, transitioned to becoming vegan because of speaking with you who prior to that, they probably never would have considered it. And a lot of it would have just been the way you received them and and without any judgment. You know, I, I do think it is important. And, you know, one of Farm Sanctuary's primary values is to speak to people where they are on their own journeys and to find common ground and to build from there. So that has been something that I've, you know, worked on for many years. Um, You know, I also do understand why, you know, as a vegan, it can be pretty frustrating sometimes to watch people participate in such unnecessary violence on a regular basis. And, And also just to look at the harms that our species causes to the planet and to other animals can be very maddening. And so that's real. And I understand it, but I also believe that kind of dwelling in that anger and that pain can actually make us less effective as activists. So I try to dwell in the positive, try to dwell in when somebody takes positive steps. And sometimes those can be small steps where somebody says they're not going to eat veal anymore, for example, or they're going to not support factory farming anymore. And when people take those steps, I think it opens up opportunities to then say, well, what do you mean by factory farming? And then in some cases, folks assume that most animals or or many animals are not factory farmed, when in fact, the vast majority, like practically almost 100% are, and depends on how you define factory farming, if you define it as seeing animals as commodities, not as living, feeling creatures, whenever you're killing and eating an animal, it's technically factory farming. So, you know, we can really start having these conversations and And I also find that asking questions like such as, you know, do you think the word humane and the word slaughter fit very well together, right? So when you ask a question, it sort of causes the person to have to think about it instead of making a declarative statement that they will perhaps react defensively to and put up a wall. The goal is to build bridges, not walls, right? So um, so I've done this on numerous occasions with various folks. Uh, The one that kind of is pretty surprising uh, is someone that I don't agree with in most ways. And I'm kind of repulsed, in fact, by some of this individual's statements. But, you know, I was on Tucker Carlson's show a few years ago and uh, talked to him about animal cruelty and how, you know, we don't need to cause harm. And, you know, it started out where he wanted to be very combative. But as time went, you know, he could not really diffuse the comments I was making. He talked about vegans being all wimpy. I said, well, the only U.S. male weightlifter to qualify for the Olympics in Rio was vegan. And that kind of opened his eyes a bit. And I heard that he was on a podcast after that. And he said that when he had this vegan on the show, he thought he was going to be crazy, but he made some really reasonable points. And that evening I went home and I ate a salad. So that's an example of a pretty big. I saw clips of that, by the way. And I thought it was so funny because he was, he was so ready to go in like, here's the crazy nutcase. And then he even said like, well, you know, actually you're really making sense here. Like it was, it really does show you that if you greet anyone with compassion and, and stay on point, right. Not get into this combativeness. And I think again, 
one thing you said very early on, and I think it still holds true, was most people in their hearts are compassionate and would totally be opposed to the way animals are treated. They just have been conditioned to not recognize that connection. And so I know you do some wonderful uh, promotional stuff for animals in so many forms. You do educational, you do legislative. But one thing that is, I think, really captures uh, people's attention is, uh, it's ironic, (laughs) they're being rescued. It's like factory farm animals. It's not like they were captive in the wild and being rescued. They're like captive domestic animals that have been in this, they've been products and now they've been rescued. And that tends to really, everybody goes nuts about those. And then they don't really think about like, well, actually that animal was going to end up maybe on your plate. Can you talk a little bit about some animal rescues? Because I think this not only is inspiring, but it also shows these are individuals. We have a collection of billions of animals that are killed. It's so, none of us can wrap our head around that. It, it is it's just, it, it would be intolerable to even try to. But, you know, just like my my cat or my dog, we know they have different personalities. We know. But you, you can't just put all cats in one category or all dogs in one category. And people that have these animals as companions know that. So I think that's what happened. So can you tell us a little bit about some rescues? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, we started out in the 19, mid-1980s by investigating factory farms, and we would find living animals in trash cans or living animals on piles of dead animals. So we started rescuing them, and the animals have become ambassadors over time. And we're very fortunate to have a number of supporters and allies across the board in various different communities. And one of our more high profile rescues in recent years was with Joaquin Phoenix, just outside of Los Angeles, there's this slaughterhouse. And there have been activists working to push the slaughterhouse owner to see animals differently. Uh, They've had some small successes, but this slaughterhouse owner Uh, while he regularly slaughters cows, will not slaughter baby cows when they're born at the slaughterhouse, which is kind of an interesting rule, kind of ironic and weird in a way, but it is a rule he has. And so the day after the Oscars, when Joaquin Phoenix actually made his speech, he won best actor for, for Joker, talked about forms of oppression and how it's important to speak up against cruelty, including cruelty to animals. And then he finished his speech with a a lyric from his late brother River that said, run to the rescue with love and peace will follow. The next morning, I'm at the slaughterhouse with Joaquin and a few other folks rescuing a mother and baby from this slaughterhouse. The mother, uh, Liberty uh, is her name now, had given birth at the slaughterhouse. And the slaughterhouse owner did not want to kill the mother and babies, so they ended up coming to Farm Sanctuary uh, to our place in Acton, California, just outside of Los Angeles. So that was a, a recent rescue. And I think what's interesting about it is the fact that the slaughterhouse owner, you know, was part of allowing this animal to go to a sanctuary. Even slaughterhouse owners, even slaughterhouse workers sometimes can act with kindness, Although, of course, most days and most of the time, they're participating in enormous violence and and bloodletting. It's unnecessary. But human beings are complicated. And I think (laughs) that 
<laughs> so, so human beings are complicated. And I think that if we can find an appeal to our better angels, uh, better angels in everybody, it's a positive thing. And what's also interesting is whenever there's a situation where you see an animal escape from a slaughterhouse, that people tend to root for that animal to survive, even though most of them are still eating animals on a regular basis. So, you know, our relationship with farm animals is one that is based on uh, abuses of power that we wield on a daily basis as a species. But also there's this instinct we have to want to see these animals survive when we see the individual running for their life away from the slaughterhouse. So what we do at Farm Sanctuary is try to encourage people to see these individuals who want to live, who do not want to be in the slaughterhouse, and, and hopefully connect with these individuals. And, and for some people where it might be a little more difficult to connect directly with a cow or a pig or a chicken or a turkey, I will sometimes also say, you know, can you imagine what it would be like to work in a slaughterhouse? where your job for eight hours a day is cutting the throats of animals. That is not a job that most people want to do. And many times people that find themselves at factory farms and, and find themselves working at slaughterhouses are also in some sense uh, disempowered, disenfranchised and exploited by this system. Uh, you know, during COVID we saw this where slaughterhouse workers were forced to go in and work in dangerous conditions. And many of them became sick and many of them died. And these were individual people who were abused in this way. And this whole system is one of oppression. And the animals are by far the largest number. The amount of suffering there is by far the most, but it's not only the animals who are suffering, it's the workers. It's even consumers who are eating food that makes them sick. Uh, and that's the earth. It is indigenous communities uh, in parts of, uh, in the rainforests who are being unearthed by, and, and their homes destroyed to cut down forests, to graze animals or to raise soybeans or other crops to feed animals. Nine, something like 10 times more land is used for animal agriculture versus plant-based. So if we shifted to plant-based agriculture, we could allow much more of the earth to just be and not be exploited and destroyed. So there's enormous suffering that comes beyond what happens on our plates, what happens in the slaughterhouses, but also what happens in communities and in ecosystems around the world. And I feel like, unfortunately, but fortunately, the, the many, many factors that are involved now in animal agriculture that are affecting us globally, we can't ignore, right? It's like, if it was one thing, animal suffering, I want to be nice to animals, but I really don't want to hear about what is happening because I really like my steak or I like my bacon. But it, unless you've had blinders on, we know global warming is is revving up and is ferocious in a way that was even unpredict unpredictable by the scientists. It's happening faster and animal agriculture is a huge contributor to that. It's something that we actually can do something about. And it is, it's mind blowing that we're here, but we really can't put our head in the sand. If, if the, the animal cruelty is not enough, and I don't want to say that to people, but if it's not, that's everybody's wired differently. And maybe you're 
you know, your what you eat and how, with your family and your traditions are more valuable. That is your opinion. And I'm not going to convince you there. But hey, how about the world <laughs> being around for your children and your grandchildren? It's we can you talk a little bit about why animal agriculture, besides just like you were saying, all the um, rainforest trees that are being destroyed, but what are the other elements of animal agriculture that is affecting these our, our environment? Yeah, well, animal agriculture is inherently inefficient. In the U.S., 10 times more land is used for animal agriculture versus plant-based agriculture. It's used for grazing or to grow soy and corn to feed animals. So if we stopped eating animals, we would have hundreds of millions of acres that could be freed up that could actually be allowed to sequester carbon. And right now, with growing awareness, there have sadly been greenwashing attempts by animal agriculture, you know, such as- Almonds, almonds are, you know, like- <laughs> right, that, Exactly. <laughs> I was like, are exactly. you kidding me? Like somebody, somebody sent me that kind of like a, oh, what do you think of this? Nudge, 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 person wasn't vegan. And I was like, well, I mean, let, I mean, come on, compare the cattle, the herds of cattle, the head of cattle, like how much water uh, one cow drinks compared to how much this, uh, it's ridiculous. They're, they're, Almonds use a lot, but cows use a lot more. Yeah, yeah it's so, apples versus oranges. Know. It's totally right. Exactly. So you don't have to drink almond milk either, but that doesn't mean you have to, you know, dairy is okay. They're, yeah. A absolutely. And another thing that the industry is now doing is trying to get money for methane digesters at factory farms where they have these massive manure lagoons that emit methane. And they're now getting money from the government to take that methane and to turn it into energy. And they're trying to sell this as green technology. But what it does actually is it incentivizes factory farming. It does not take into account that 90% of the greenhouse gases that the system produces happen before the manure lagoon. So this is a very small amount. And we could prevent all that in the first place by shifting to plant-based agriculture. So you know, what happens, and, and this is a typical technique of agribusiness or, or other abusers, is they will look at one really bad thing and make something a little less bad and say it's a solution, when in fact it is not. And, and grazing cows is another one, you know, grass-fed, you know, beef or whatever they're talking about as a way to sequester carbon. What they don't talk about is the fact that cows, just by being alive, their enteric digestion produces a lot of methane which actually contributes more to the climate crisis, especially in the short term, than carbon. So livestock grazing is not a solution to the climate crisis, although that is something that the industry is going to try to sell. So you have awareness, which is good, but you also now have industry attempts to market certain animal products as green and environmentally sustainable, but that's all greenwashing. The best solution is to shift to eating plants instead of animals, we could allow nature to sequester carbon in the form of trees and healthy soil instead of cropland that is depleted and, and then depends on petrochemical fertilizers, which then adds more to the climate crisis because now you've got nitrous oxide going up into the air. You also have the, the fossil fuels that have been used to produce those petrochemical fertilizers. And, and you have land that is denuded and cannot sequester greenhouse gases. So Shifting away from animal agriculture to permaculture, to plant-based agriculture, to more diversified uh, cropland, 
is I think the way to go. And this can be done not only in rural areas, but also in urban areas like urban agriculture, I think presents enormous opportunities. There's a, a food not lawns movement that I think is also very exciting, where if you think about it, we have all these lawns around the country, something like 30 million acres of irrigated lawns compared to 10 million acres of fruits and vegetables. Wouldn't it be amazing if those lawns could be shifted to be growing fruits and vegetables and for homeowners that have a gardener come in and mow the lawn and put down fertilizer, maybe that gardener could actually become a gardener and grow vegetables. Mm. And then maybe if they grow enough vegetables, they could actually then create a CSA and sell them to the urban areas and the suburban areas, or maybe there could be a barter between different neighbors with different land and different gardeners. So there's a lot of potential opportunities when you uh, start looking at resources such as land um, and labor and, and recalibrating how those interact and, and then look for solutions. In addition to identifying problems, you know, such as factory farming, I think we can look for solutions. And then ultimately what we need to see as well are government programs that support the solutions instead of giving billions of dollars every year to support factory farming. Mm -hmm. And there was a report done a few years ago looking at dairy industry income they found that 73% of dairy industry income came from government programs. Now that's just ridiculous, right? And, and that's so- That's the free so milk the, at school and all that. I mean, like, come on. We- it, Exactly. We're just shoved, it's, it's crazy. We, we get, it's shoved in our face and, you know. We, absolutely. Yeah. So, so, so these farmers are subsidized on the front end, like growing corn and soy and the, the milk prices are supported. So they're guaranteed an income. And then- it's marketed through the school lunch program and other federal programs to encourage people to drink cow's milk. But, you know, of course, cow's milk is really for cows, not people. Right. But that's what the government's pushing. And um, so it's a, it's a, the system, the way it currently stands is inefficient, it's dysfunctional, and it's funded to the tune of billions of dollars that is bad for uh, animals, bad for the earth, bad for consumers. Uh, and it is something that is also bad for taxpayers. Mm -hmm. So I think as we start getting more accountability, uh, there will be opportunities. But of course, the industry does not want there to be accountability. In fact, they've tried to pass laws and gag laws, so you can't see what's happening. So it's a we're up against a big, powerful, in, in, in entrenched machine, and we just need to keep plugging right. away. It, yeah, I think a lot chipping away. It ha It is. It obviously. It this is where again everybody's listening. This is where you matter. Every person that chooses not to participate in that system is making a difference. It really, it's a cumulative effect. It's like you just put in enough. It's like compound interest. You get enough people going and you put it, it people have to change. Why is the non-dairy milk industry booming and becoming its own billion dollar industry? Because enough people said, hey, I don't want you know, whether it was allergies or whether it was they didn't want to participate in um, cruelty, it doesn't really matter. The animals don't care why you don't choose to drink, uh, but it, it's become so much more popularized. And that's a great thing. Let's talk about dairy a little bit because you've obviously come across so many people. I've come across so many people. And this seems to be like the last holdout. You know, it's like, well, I could give up meat. I could give up red meat. 
Then they stick with the chickens for a while or whatever. Then they do the pescatarian route. It's kind of the transition, but somehow dairy is the last thing. And it is, you know, it has an addictive quality to it with the opiate-like compounds that a nursing mammal emits to bond with the baby. I mean, we all did it. We had that like, ah, if you've, if you've ever nursed, you know that feeling. And then we ingest that through the animal's product and, and we feel that. So there is this kind of like comfort of cheese, dairy, whatever. But can you talk a little bit about how absolutely egregious, egregiously cruel the dairy industry is? Yes. Well, you know, I think a lot of people become vegetarian because they don't want to see animals suffering and dying to be consumed. And those folks oftentimes don't become vegan. They assume that dairy cows aren't being killed. They're producing milk. So maybe they have a decent life. But in fact, dairy cows probably have a worse life than beef cattle or most other farm animals. And that's because they live longer. Um, they are pushed beyond their biological limits. They are forcibly impregnated to have a calf every year because for a cow to give milk, she, just like other mammals, have to have a baby. They don't lactate just for the fun of it. They lactate to feed their baby. So they're forcibly impregnated, give birth, the baby's taken away, sometimes within minutes, sometimes within a couple of days, but they're taken away so that milk from that mother cow can now be taken and sold for humans. And the cow is hooked up to a milk machine that pushes them to produce about 10 times more milk than they would in nature. And, you know, normally a calf would suckle maybe a dozen times a day, taking a little milk each time. But in the dairy industry, to maximize production, they hook them up to a milk machine that basically takes all the milk in one sitting, which then stimulates the udder to produce a larger amount of milk. So they produce about 10 times more than they would in nature, which means that their bodies are under extreme stress. Remember talking to a dairy farmer who said for a dairy cow producing in this way, it's like running a marathon every day. So they are in what's called a state of negative energy balance. They cannot eat enough to keep the weight on their bodies. So they're losing weight during their lactation cycle. Uh, and what makes it even worse is about two months into their lactation cycle, they're re-impregnated so that they're giving milk. They have a baby growing inside of them and they have a nine month gestation period. So, so they're pregnant and giving milk at that intensive level for about seven months. And then right before giving birth, they stop milking them so they can be reconditioned, which is their term, so that the weight can go back on the cow. So when she gives birth again, she has some weight on Reserve. her and she can go through the cycle again. Uh, and in a natural environment, cows could live 20 or more years easily. But on modern dairy farms, they're usually sent to slaughter, usually for ground beef, after just about two years in production mm. because they're pushed so hard. So these are animals who have their babies taken away. They're forced to produce enormous amounts of milk. They're, they're under constant physical as well as emotional stress. You know, losing a baby is not a, a small thing. And then in many cases, they become downed animals. In fact, most of the downed animals, again, these are animals too sick to walk that we have seen at slaughterhouses over the years have been downed cows from the dairy industry. Uh, there was even a slaughterhouse in Southern California. It was actually called Dairyland. 
before it became known as Westland Hallmark, which some people may have heard about because in 2008, it was the site of the largest beef recall in US history when they were found to be slaughtering down cows in violation of federal and local laws. Um, that had been legal for many years, and thankfully we were able to get legislation passed to prohibit downed cows from going into the slaughterhouse, but that slaughterhouse uh, was mainly killing downed dairy cows. Mm. Well, again, dairy is not good for us, for our bodies, and it's really not good for our hearts because we are contributing to, I mean, especially I'll say as a woman, as a mother, as an environmentalist, all of the above, uh, there is to be consistent, it would be inconsistent to participate and have any dairy in my life for that alone, not to mention that my body has felt so much better, 20 years dairy-free, but it is it is so massively cruel and unjust what we're doing to another mother whose baby is in the womb the same amount of time my babies were in my womb. And to assume that that mother would not have incredible distress and sadness is, again, just, you know, that's a human thing. We just make these assumptions that animals don't feel the same emotions just because we can't communicate to them in the same way we would. But we can see it. If you look at it, there's there's misery there. So I would love to talk a little bit about um, another thing people will, you know, they go through all their kind of like philodex of arguments. And one of them is, well, what about the farmers? What are they going to do? I would love this story. You had um, a neighbor in Farm Sanctuary, and I remember you telling me the story. He wasn't a farmer, but I think he kept boxes or something in, well, and, and that's an example. And you know, many more, you know, past farmers who no longer farm and they're so happy for it, but there's many ways. Can you talk a little bit about that instance of your neighbor? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Well, you know, I, I like to say that we're not anti-farmer or anti-cruelty. And I also believe that many farmers don't like doing the things they're doing and would rather do some things differently. But the neighbor you're talking about was actually a fur farmer, and we did not know what he was doing, and we did not know that this neighbor was right across the street from us when we got the farm in Watkins Glen, New York. But we learned pretty quickly. Uh, we heard the foxes screaming, and we learned that he would actually kill them there, and he would skin them there, and he would sell their furs. And so needless to say, as vegans, this was a pretty shocking revelation, and we were not happy about it. And, but instead of like screaming at him, I actually invited him to the sanctuary, to some of our events. And he started coming and his son started coming and spending time with a bunch of vegans and learning a little bit about our thinking. And after several years, he came to me and he said, you know, I really don't like killing the foxes like this. And then he said, and what kind of vegetables do you guys like? And he stopped killing foxes and he opened up a little vegetable stand. So that was a very positive thing. And I'm not sure that he had a complete change of heart. I mean, I think he was still trapping and doing other things that I don't think are great, but he was not keeping hundreds of foxes in cages anymore. So it was a, an incremental step. And, you know, when we talk about farmers, I think it's also important to distinguish between like industrial operations and agribusinesses and small farmers. In many cases, the small farmers are actually threatened and suffer because of the predatory techniques of factory farms, including in the dairy industry. We have these small dairy farmers that are struggling. They're doing what they know, and they don't really know many other things in many cases. So they feel like they have to keep doing this. 
but they have a hard time competing with the big factory farms. And the factory farms, in many cases, put the small farm out of business and then buy the farm at a very cheap price. And these small farms then lose everything. And it's tragic. And in some cases, you have these small farmers who become very depressed and their high suicide rates. And what I find appalling is the way that agribusiness actually uses those stories of these small dairies who the big farms have put out of business to get more government money for the dairy industry, which then goes to the factory farms. So this is an industry that is based on uh, exploitation, extraction, uh, the appropriation of land and labor and resources, and also the appropriation even of identities of these struggling farmers, which are then used to sell uh, politicians on giving more money to the dairy industry, which ultimately support the big factory farms. Same thing happens in the poultry industry where you have these large integrators like Tyson or these other factory farm poultry conglomerates that have contract growers who are basically like indentured servants on their own land. So, so the, the, the contract grower provides the land, uh, provides all the labor to take care of the chickens. Uh, they usually go into debt to build chicken barns to the factory farms specifications. So they go into debt and now they're on this treadmill that they cannot get off of. Um, so the integrator has now appropriated their land, their labor. The farmer has to deal with lots of pollution and dead bodies, dead birds on their own land. And then Tyson and these other big poultry companies will say that their birds are raised by small family farms, appropriating this identity of the small farmer who they are exploiting. So that's the same thing that happens in the dairy industry. So it's it's this industry of extraction, uh, exploitation. Deception, and oh, right? Deception oh, yeah. and deceit, absolutely. Oh, yeah. well, I hope everybody can, you know, learn more about this. And, you know, moving on and, and leaving us now, I would love for you to just tell us what your hopes and dreams are at this point in our history. You know, we're coming, we're in the middle, we're coming off of the pandemic now, maybe we're in the epidemic part. We're not sure what's going on. It's just, I think people are at low places. You know, a lot of realities, there's been injustice, racial injustices that um, that have been revealed, that have always been there, but that have come to light. There's a lot of divisiveness. And there's a part of me that believes like, if we could just be kinder to all beings, including animals, that maybe life could look a little bit more hopeful. And so I would love to hear your thoughts on that. What are your hopes for this year? And, what, and you know, recommendations for people who are feeling down and... Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really tough time in many ways. And, you know, my hope is that this pandemic and what we've all been through will hopefully cause us to sort of think, be a little bit more reflective, do more yoga, <laughs> breathe, relax. Um, and understand the importance of simple things, you know, like, like fresh air, clean water, good food, good company, love, you know, these basic health. things that we yeah. all need. Health, health, absolutely. Yeah. And, um, and to pay attention to those instead of to just run, run, run to the next, you know, financial opportunity. It's worth a lot. Things are much more important than that. So, I think that there were lots of disruptions in our food system that became apparent. There has been, I think, a cracking open 
of the racism and the, the structural oppression that has been baked into this nation that is hard to look at, but it's critical that we look at and try to get right. I believe there are enormous opportunities to create more equity through the food system, to provide access to land for people of color who've historically had their land stolen from them. So I think that in urban areas, providing access to land could be very positive, as well as in rural areas. And, and this is where creating new opportunities for, for young farmers, new farmers, people of color who've historically been denied these opportunities. So I, I'm actually hopeful about some of the things that might be possible. I also am very happy to see a growing awareness about the benefits of plant-based eating. Uh, a friend of mine, Tracy McWhorter, a couple of years ago started the 10,000 Black Vegan Women's Movement. It's now the 10 million Black Vegan Women Vegan amazing, amazing. So there's these kinds of things that are starting to happen that I think are very positive. And it's really about creating health and well-being and people being empowered to live well. Uh, and especially folks who've been denied that for so long. And I think there's enormous hunger for health and well-being. And I think if we can start working to create government and uh, social systems to support that, we could see an explosion of plant-based agriculture in diverse communities. And that's the kind of thing that gives me a lot of hope, as well as just being at Farm Sanctuary and seeing animals who've been rescued, including Pietro, who just came to the farm uh, earlier this year. He was a, a young calf born on a dairy farm. He's a male, so he wasn't useful to the dairy farmer. He became very sick, but one of the workers stepped in and said, this animal needs help and arranged for him ultimately to come to farm sanctuary. So any little act of kindness is something that I think is worth dwelling in and celebrating. And I think that each act of kindness can hopefully lead to another one. And small things sometimes lead to bigger changes over time. So I just always try to grab onto the little positive things and hold on to those and try to build from there. I love that. That is a great recommendation for all of us. And um, for those of, that don't know you yet more than this podcast, can you talk a little bit about your uh, wonderful farm sanctuary and how people can get involved and people who want to do something, maybe give them some tips on little things they can do, whether it's, like you said, going to farm sanctuary or volunteering at a sanctuary near their own homes? Yes, yes, yes. No, we love it for people to come visit Farm Sanctuary. And there are now sanctuaries around the country people can visit. So that's, and it's, I think, telling that sanctuaries are open to the public, whereas factory farms are not. That says a lot. Um, but I think in our daily lives, just shifting to eating more plant foods, also eating more whole foods and supporting local farmers, you know, voting with our dollars, going to the farmer's market, participating in a CSA, a community supported agriculture program. I think is another positive thing for folks who have enough space, maybe, and you don't need a lot of space, maybe grow some of your own food, you know, plant some vegetables and, and, or plant a fruit tree. And, and then I've, I've talked to people who one neighbor has a peach tree, another neighbor has a plum tree and they, the one has too many peaches, the other has too many plums. So they share. So, so get, so, so I think there's a lot of community that can also be built around food and agriculture. So, and, and then just 
take heart from the little things because it's rare to see a massive shift over time. So I think we need to take heart from the little things and and build from there. Mm. Thank you so much, Jean. You have the biggest heart and the most patience. And I think it is, I remember talking to you 20 years and it is, you know, pushing a boulder up a hill, but you do get closer to the top and then, the, and there's already been some, uh, a, a great amount of traction and growing because I, I agree with you. I believe in the good of humanity. I mean, we all, I well, I started off not thinking this way and connecting the dots. But I do think there's something about really living in line, alignment with your core values. And I think the biggest one is is feeling compassion for other people. Because when we're of service, when we care outside of ourselves, that's where we really feel not only empowered, but there's a place. We feel relevant, you know? Otherwise, we're just existing on our own little island. So go out and get involved in whatever way that feels right for you. Yes, plant-based diet. You know to come to me if you have any questions. Go to farmsanctuary.org. They have all kinds of great information of how you can support them. We've loved supporting you, all your fine work for so many years. You were literally like the first farm sanctuary. Now they're all over. You've inspired so many people and you continue to inspire me. So thank you so much for your time and your heart. Thank you, Laura, for the same, for your time and your heart and for everything you're doing. We're all in this together. We are. A little bit you can keep plugging away. Yeah. All right, everybody. As always, I'm pulling for you. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast. And I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher.